0: I'm starting off today something a little bit different, some very light subject matter, to offset, you know, maybe anything that's not quite so light as we get toward the end of the message. So, I'm going to read an article. It's a short article, and it takes place somewhere in Iraq. Stating that he just doesn't feel like he's being fed by the persecuted underground church he's been attending for the past three years. Local man Salim Haddad reported Wednesday that he's planning on trying out a competing church just 30 miles across a deadly patch of open desert that is covered with live explosives. Pastor Malik is a great guy and everything, but I don't know. The youth program is just okay, and the refreshments are lacking. And Pastor's a pretty good teacher, but he just doesn't make the living word of God really come alive, you know? Haddad told reporters through an encoded message for fear of giving away the location of the church, which could result in the further persecution or martyrdom of his brothers and sisters in Christ. I heard about another Christian church about eight hours from here by foot. On the other side of the passage of certain death, he added, I think the family and I are going to go check it out. Haddad described his family's wish list for a church as including topical, relevant preaching, Contemporary music, feeling like they can really get connected, and a casual, laid-back atmosphere that's warm and inviting, despite having to sneak into the building at night for fear of capture and slaughter by the Muslim authorities. We love Pastor Malik, and we wish him all the best, but I feel like it's God's will for us to go church shopping. Hadad said this as he and his family began preparations for their dangerous journey across the mind-laden desert. We really hope this new church has the vibe we're looking for. So if you hadn't already guessed, that wonderful story was published by the Babylon Bee, back in 2016. The Babylon Bee being, of course, the most insightful and truthful news source out there right now. And the fact that it's entirely satire won't change my mind on this. Satire, in my opinion, is one of the greatest literary tools of all time. You see, by nature, we as humans, We're not super amenable to criticism. We like to think we're right all the time, which is crazy luck because it means that so many other people have to be wrong all the time. We bristle when someone, even someone we love and trust, tries to gently and lovingly correct us. And if we bristle at that, we downright go on a warpath if someone we don't know tries to point out our errors. But satire, cleverly, is not about us, at least not directly. It's humorous, and at first glance seems to be highlighting the error in others, which we are very happy to notice. But if we give it honest reflection, we're able to see our own shortcomings more clearly. It's like taking medicine with a spoonful of sugar. So I have an admission to make this week. My passages were picked for me. This next weekend, I'll be participating in a Bible teaching workshop over at Hinson. And these are my assigned passages. So it's kind of like a two birds, one stone, you know, type of thing. But as I started working through the passages, I thought, this is actually really great. This is perfect for us. Paul's words here are a great reminder to me and to all of us here at InTown, as we move slowly and thoughtfully into discussions about where we belong as a congregation. A reminder that what each one of us has in this room, in Christ, together, that is, eternal fellowship with him and with each other, because of our salvation, because of our salvation that was accomplished by his death and resurrection. And this is infinitely stronger and more superior than anything we disagree on. It should be the lens by which we prioritize every discussion we have about what defines in town. So our focus today will be on what Paul has to say to us about unity in Christ. But just a quick overview of where we're at in Philippians to get us started. So this is one of Paul's prison letters. He's writing to the Philippians from prison in Rome. The letter indicates that Timothy is in Rome with Paul, aiding and caring for him while he's in prison. This would have been necessary because prisoners back then were not necessarily fed by the the prison systems. So they would have relied on friends, family, or charitable people, oftentimes Christians, to provide food and basic comfort, like blankets, for them. The prison conditions would have been dark and filthy, poorly ventilated, maybe underground. There would have been a complete lack of privacy, as most prisoners were housed in common rooms, maybe groups of prisoners were chained together. And yet, despite these seemingly overwhelming and depressing conditions, Philippians is a really joyful, happy letter. Paul writes some of the most encouraging, optimistic, and hopeful words to the church he planted. The themes touched on in this relatively short letter are Paul's affection for his readers, joy, the triune God, Christ's humility, justification by by grace through faith, the Christian life, Christian unity, Christian generosity, our our identification with Christ, and perseverance. Paul covers a lot of ground in four chapters, which that's kind of what he typically does. Philippians is like a hall of fame for verses you probably didn't know you have memorized. Verses like, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or our text, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. For the most famous, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, which contrary to popular belief is not about winning the Super Bowl or being super successful at your job. These verses are all the more impactful though, knowing that they were written from the prison conditions Paul was experiencing. So our passage begins, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I also like what the King James Version says. It says, let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Paul says this within the context of Christian unity. There's something that binds all of us together that takes precedence over everything else. Paul tells the Philippians that the way they think and act toward each other is a direct reflection of who they worship to the outside world. And this is true for us, of course, too. The way we act every day, online or in real person, the way we treat others, and the way we treat and speak with and about our fellow Christians, which is sometimes the hardest should always be in a manner that positively and truthfully reflects the God whom we worship. We're not just nice and polite or loving and truthful for the sake of some vague morality or so so that people like us. But because when we behave in a manner that glorifies God, we are also modeling the goodness and truth of God to those who are watching us. On to say that we can be courageous in our Christian living, that we shouldn't be frightened of anything our opponents can throw at us. In fact, we should expect it. We should expect to receive ridicule, insults, and even persecution. That's okay. Don't be afraid to still be visibly Christian. I like how Paul wrote, at, I mean, at least when he was writing in the English Standard Version. Uh, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for for his sake. To grant someone something, one online dictionary says, is to give someone something often as an award. Do we remember to think about our suffering in the Lord as an award? Paul certainly did. James also tells us to count it all joy my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. When Paul talks about his contentment and joy in the Lord, regardless of his circumstances, this is actually what he means when he says that he can do all things because he has the strength of Christ in him. Paul tells the church at Philippi that their unity, their oneness of mind, and their love for each other will complete his joy. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, he says, but humbly count others as more significant than yourselves. This mindset of humility and of placing the needs and interests above others is actually a key to happiness. When we are occupied by serving God and serving others, We are less likely to focus on self-importance and self-fulfillment, which has really never made anyone happy. Though counterintuitive, we will actually find fulfillment and joy ourselves when we live our lives striving to ensure the joy of others. Our manner of living reflects the truth of God when we obey Him and when we serve others, when we love God and when we love our neighbor. In chapter 4, Paul specifically entreats Syntyche and Euodia to agree in the Lord. And we don't know what these two women disagreed on, but that, that doesn't seem to matter. So what does it mean to agree in the Lord? Does it mean that these women need to hash out whatever their disagreement is until one of them is persuaded over to the other side and admits she's wrong? Or does it mean that they need to kind of just passively agree to disagree? The answer, of course, is no to both of those situations. We are not actually called to agree to disagree. I know that sometimes seems like the easy answer. But to be honest, it's really not that hard to do. How hard is it to just ignore a belief someone has and avoid any conversation about it? Can we really love someone if we won't even be bothered to understand why they hold to a certain belief? We're also not called to debate and debate until we're blue in the face, insisting that we're right and that others must surrender as we rise victorious, having conquered and laid waste to another theological debate. Every single one of us in this room is wrong on at least one thing, theologically speaking. Right? We can admit at least that much. So we need to leave room to listen to others with humility and be open to changing our mind if we find error in our thought. One of the calls of the Reformation was Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda, which means the church reformed, always reforming. We can be reforming too, not because the word of God changes or reformed in, or reforms, it absolutely does not, but because as we are continually being sanctified by God, renewing our minds in scripture, and growing in the knowledge and love of the Lord, we are always open to the truth of God's word correcting our errors, and sometimes God uses other people to help us see our errors. And we should be humble and grateful to God that he loves us so much that he corrects us when we're wrong. So then, finding our agreement in the Lord is something completely different than agreeing to disagree or fighting it out. And it's something that probably goes, well, let me say this, it definitely goes against my conflict-avoiding nature. It means that we lean into our differences with love. It means that because we love our brother or sister in the Lord with whom we disagree, we ourselves do the hard work of going back to the scripture and testing our beliefs against the word of God. And we lovingly encourage our brother or sister to do the same. It's a commitment to discipleship. It does not mean neglecting or minimizing our high view of scripture, of God's authoritative word, but that we thoughtfully, openly, and honestly have these important conversations with each other, striving for truth in love. After all, Proverbs does tell us that we are like iron sharpening iron, when we challenge and edify one another in love. To agree in the Lord may not mean that we find complete agreement on any given secondary issue. But it does mean that we find our oneness in the Holy Spirit because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, which irrevocably binds us together with a bond that is stronger than anyone or anything else. Did you catch that I kind of parenthetically added the word secondary into that last part? (laughs) When Paul instructs instructs us to agree in the Lord, by definition we cannot disagree with the Lord on who he is and what he has told us is definitive to being his follower. Now you might ask, what is essential? And what can we disagree on but still have agreement in the Lord? And those distinctions are not part of my message. (laughs) Not because I don't have really strong beliefs about them. I do, and I know all of you do too. And not because I'm afraid to speak with clarity on these issues. In fact, it's imperative that we do. And it's the most loving thing we can do. It's actually just because our congregation is not yet at the optimal size for a church split. I joke there because I have PTSD about church splits, okay, all right, but I will say this, I'll give you something. The essentials of the faith, those core beliefs that define Christianity, to where if we depart from them, we've moved outside of orthodoxy and have put our salvation at risk, they're both more and less than we'd sometimes like to admit to. How can our essential doctrines be more and less, you ask? Thank you for asking. Well, it's because of us. It's because we find both legalism and libertinism in our own hearts, don't we? We're a mixture. Some of us might lean more legalistic, with a tendency to add things to the gospel that are necessary for salvation or for being a good Christian. And some of us lean more libertine, taking away from the goodness of the gospel that is fundamental to our right relationship with God. And to be clear, anything that we add or take away from the gospel becomes self-worship, because in that moment we determine we know better than God. So these are really important conversations to have, and we do need to find agreement on these things. That's something that makes for a healthy church that prioritizes God's word over our own feelings. These central tenets of our faith are going to be the same here at InTown, as they are in the Lutheran congregation that meets here in the morning, or as the non-denominational church in the suburbs, or the Southern Baptist congregation in Kentucky. But as for those secondary issues, well, we still have to agree in the Lord. We need to be of one mind and one spirit. We need to love each other more than we love ourselves, and certainly more than we love the feeling of being right about an issue. And let me just state for the record that secondary issues are not unimportant issues. Everything we believe about God is important. We should take seriously that believing something false about God is wrong and even sinful, if we arrogantly persist in holding on to something that is in conflict with God's truth, which is the only truth. As Christians, we are deeply concerned with truth, and we cannot have fellowship with what is untrue. We should be striving to align our own beliefs and whole worldview up with what God says is true in his word, even if it's wildly unpopular with the rest of the world. Secondary issues are important, but there is room to have family conversations about these points of doctrine. My belief about who should be baptized and when does not determine my relationship with Jesus, but it is still important for me to desire to be truthful in what I believe. And I should be willing to outspokenly align myself as being of one mind and one spirit with all Christians, all over the world, regardless of whether they are Cato or Credo Baptists, or their view of women in ministry, or their views of the gifts of the Spirit, or free will and predestination, or whatever it is. The person who has put his or her faith in the Jesus of the Bible is my brother or sister whom I am commanded to love because they are part of the Bride of Christ. And how can I love Christ if I don't love his Bride? If Christ loves that person, then so must I, and He does. Okay, so here's where it gets a little squirmy. <laughs> the March second question that went out in the In Town newsletter was, "What gets you excited about In Town's future, and what makes you fearful?" Though written d- differently, the answer- answers given conveyed that the fears and hopes of all of us are very similar. For some, there is a fear fear that the views represented in our congregation are too disparate, even on important issues, and that after we've left the RCA and begin to focus on where we'll go, these disparities will prove too difficult to overcome. Maybe this is your concern. Admittedly, it's mine sometimes. But the good news is that we have a God who overcomes fear, and who actively builds his church one stone upon another so that no human has any ability to tear down what God has built up. And so here's what I'm going to encourage all of us to do. Pray. A lot. Pray every day for InTown and for every person individually in our congregation. Pray that we would have the spirit of unity as we together as the family of Christ begin our journey of figuring out where we fit in, what confessions we will adopt, and what denomination we'll join. Pray that it that each of us will consider the cares and concerns of others in our congregation as valid and important, and coming from a place of sincerity and a desire to please God. And after you've spent lots of time praying about it, go out of your way to have a discussion with the person that sits next to you in the pew, or in your community groups, or by inviting folks out to lunch or coffee who you maybe don't get a lot of time to speak with after the service. And don't be afraid to talk about what is theologically important to you. Agreement in the Lord doesn't mean that we're all going to be perfectly aligned on everything. But it does mean that we love each other as one single big family, even in spite of our differences.
1: Maybe I'm stepping over a line a
0: little bit here, but I think in Intown's Town's past, While we've had an absolute array of theological viewpoints represented, we lacked the courage to really talk about and lean into where we differ. Maybe for fear of offending somebody, or maybe for fear of being judged ourselves. We knew the differences were there, but we didn't really talk about them, and so many people left because they felt too different from the rest of us. And so now it feels scary that some of these differences might come to the surface and we'll need to face them head on. But let me tell you this. You'll never offend me by disagreeing with me on baptism, and you'll never offend me if you try to convince me of your position. And I hope the opposite is true too, because I have some really compelling scripture that I, you know, but this example of baptism is purposely innocuous. It's one nobody here has ever had a problem with. But what about those issues that make your face flush a little when you think about them being brought up in a group? Can we talk about those too? Can we love each other through our disagreements, even when we hold passionately to our belief? And not in like the love is black, blind platitude kind of way. I mean with a love that knows the other person deeply, can see all the faults and weaknesses that we all have, and yet still chooses to commit to a life of fellowship, discipleship, prayer, and worship together. Can we worship God through our disagreements? I hope so, and I believe so. It's not easy, but then again, People are often not easy. This is one thing, though, that sets Christians apart loving unlovables like ourselves, because of the example Christ set by loving us so much that he died to reconcile us to God while we were yet sinners and totally unlovely. Isn't that reason enough to work through our differences now? It would be super embarrassing to have to do it in heaven. And when it seems hard, remember that we are actually already doing this. Some of us have been for decades. All the differences that we have that might float up to the surface when we begin having those discussions, they're all part of us right now, and yet here we are. Loving each other, fellowshipping together, and worshipping the same God together. See, we can do it. We're not perfect, but the God we worship is. There's another reformation called post tenebras lux, which means after darkness light. I like this motto for InTown. I believe that we have light ahead of us, but also that we are already experiencing light after darkness. I know a lot of you feel that way, too. God has taken such good care of us this far, and I'm excited to trust him to take care of us for the next month, and for the next year, and for the next decade, and beyond. I believe that InTown is and will continue to be a light in our dark city. I'm excited to be a part of that with all of you, as we humbly and with each other's interests and God's unchangeable truth as our priority, seek his will for us.